Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. I have to tell you something, people. You know what's hip if you're a drummer or a musician. So what you have to do is you have to check out my good friend, Rich Redmond's latest. Uh, it's a production. It's a digital production. I met Rich at a party a year ago, and we instantly became really good friends. And he has a great new website. It's called Drumming in the Modern World. And what it is, it's a video that not only sits there and teaches you how to play drums... He plays with Jason Aldean. He shows some of the Aldean breaks for you. And it also helps you navigate the music business. Because he's been in Nashville for 20-odd years and been making a living. So you got to check it out. One, because it's a great product. And two, he's a good friend. And three, he's been on Cooper Talk twice. So you have to go to www.drumminginthemodernworld.com. Check it out. Check out Rich's Drumming. Also go to his website, richredmond.com. And that's about it. And my guest today... He, I know, has played with Rich Redmond, and he also started out as a drummer, and my guest is uh, Kenny Harrison. How you doing, Kenny? I'm good, Steve. How you doing, man? Now, it's funny. We were just talking about the telemarketers, and uh, now, are you in, where are you living now? Are you in Long Island, or are you in Philly, or where are you at? Well, I, I live in two places. I spend most of my time at my girlfriend's house in Pennsylvania. But I, I, I still have a place in New Jersey that I'm, I'm at, like, a little bit every month. What what town in Jersey? Because I grew up in Jersey. Oh, Woodbridge. Okay, I grew up in Cherry Hill, so I'm more south. Now, are you, are oh, you... okay. Yeah, you're, you're south. Actually, you're, you're not far from, that far from where I am. Well, I'm... I'm, I'm, in, I'm in Wayne, PA. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, I'm moving back in May or June, so I'm going to have to come to... If you have a show in the area, I'm going to have to come oh, to one, yeah, of those, one of those in-the-pocket shows I want to come to. So, sure, absolutely. So i got to ask you. Now, Now I read about you, and your older brother was a drummer, so you wanted to be a drummer. Was anyone else in your family a musician, or how did this whole musician thing start? Um, it's a little weird. I mean, well, not weird, but my parents... I mean, my parents listened to music, but nobody in the immediate family played an instrument. But my father and my mom, you know, they liked, uh, you know, there were show tune records around and some opera, you know. My father was singing in the shower. <laughs> but we, my, we, had this, we had these cousins that lived near us when we were young. They, they ended up moving away. Uh, but this, this was when my brother and I were pretty young, we had these two cousins, we had, and, and, and um, one of them played some drums, and my brother was sort of influenced a bit by him. And I remember when I was really young, my brother, this, this cousin turned my brother on to the album by... Alatunji, Drums of Passion. And so my brother used to play that at home all the time, and then I really fell in love with it. To this day, I still love that that one particular track, Drums of Passion, I think it is. I mean, that might just be the name of the album, but there was there was a famous song from that record that, uh, that I've always, really was always in love with. And so basically, uh, but you know, my brother was seven years older than me, so I don't remember exactly how he started. I only know the stories that my family would say would would tell. And basically, 
my brother, I guess, had some kind of drum bug. He must have been born with it because apparently when he was really, really young, he would be banging on Saturn coffee cans. Okay. <laughs> so then um, an aunt of mine apparently bought him some sort of maybe snare drum, you know, way, you know, when he was young to give him something real to play on. But, you know, I remember my brother having the rubber pads to practice on. So, you know, we always grew up in an apartment. So we were worried about how much noise you can make. So, you know, my brother would do most of his practicing at home on, on these rubber drum pads, you know. Um, and my brother, at a very early age, was into rock and roll. But somewhere along the line, I guess, close to like maybe junior high school age, he changed and he really got into classical music and that's what he basically pursued. And he went through uh, all this schooling and playing in different orchestra systems that were in New York City, old city, old borough. Uh, anyway, he ended up going to Juilliard and he ended up playing in the New York Philharmonic. And actually he worked on the Leonard Bernstein for quite a few years. And he also worked uh, uh, with the Metropolitan Opera, and he worked for the Martha Graham Dance Company. My brother did a lot of stuff. He was very good. He was a really, really, he became a, a, an amazing orchestral player, actually. And he totally uh, forsaked, he just gave up rock and roll. I mean, totally just left it in the dust, didn't care about it. So you would watch him, and then so you wanted to follow in your big brother's footsteps? Well, you know, there was a set of Rogers drums in the, in the apartment, Blue Sparkle, and uh, I, you know, I always loved drums. Um, and drums and bass is what I always heard. Um, and, and probably one of the reasons for that, and I've said this before, is like, but my father built our, our stereo, well, actually it wasn't stereo, it was a monophonic, Hi-Fi, you know, it was uh, one speaker. But this thing put out a lot of low end. So I, you know, I kind of, you know, and then, you know, hanging around the local pizza place at the jukebox, you know, there was always a lot of, I heard a lot of bass. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I just, I just gravitated towards the rhythm section. I mean, I love drums. And then I was always hearing a lot of bass, you know, like I said, from either a jukebox or my, my my home hi-fi and uh i don't know i i i just focused on rhythm section that's what i heard you know that's what that's what i felt that's what i heard that's what i related to and uh and i would you know i would come home from school and i would pull out my my brother's drum kit and i would set it up and i'd play for a while you know up to all my 45s and, uh, you know, and I, I just started to play drums probably around 11. And, uh, you know, but uh, I don't know, I guess um, somehow I, I just remember, uh, I remember when I started going to junior high school, there was this older kid uh, that, that I, you know, there was a sort of group of kids, and I used to hang around, and they were older than me. And one day we went over to one of their houses, 
and he had this Fender bass like lying on his bed, brand new Fender bass, and I looked at this thing, and I just like flipped, like flipped out, and I just said, I've got to like have one of these, I've got to play this thing, and, and, I, and I just, you know, I still see it in my head. Okay. You know, I can still remember going over to this kid's house after school and, you know, seeing this bass in the case lying, you know, like lying on his bed or whatever, and just, you know, the long neck and the big tuning pegs on it, and it was just this, you know, the, the four strings, it was just like this revelation on some weird level. I just, it was like, I, I have to do this, I have to have this thing. I want this guitar, you know, and and um, well, <laughs> my parents wouldn't buy that for me, but I <laughs> did get my first bass, which was like you know a Japanese knockoff of a Fender that cost like forty bucks or something, you know. So so, so that's you, what I got. When you got it, did you did you start self teaching you? Did you? I mean, because you you well, you, you drums. How did you get about to start learning how to play it? Well, it's an interesting story. Um, I got the bass when I was about 14 and didn't really have anybody to play with at that time and didn't really know what I was doing with it. So, now at the time, my brother was going to, I think he just started Juilliard and he had these friends that had a band. And if you think, now you, I, I think you'll remember this. His, his friends from Juilliard had a rock band, classical music, musicians who put a rock band together, and they were the New York Rock, rock and Roll Ensemble. Okay. And uh, their bass player asked me if I could borrow, if he could borrow my bass, because I guess he, they were putting this band together and he needed a bass, and I was sort of, not quite committed to doing it. So I lent this other bass player the bass, and then sometime later he says, can I just hang on to it and buy it from you? And I said, and it, right at that point, I just said, no, I think I want it back. And then maybe I was about 15 at that point, and I got my bass back, and that's when I started playing. And I remember like one of the first things I think I learned was Mr. Tambourine Man or something. Okay. So. You know, and, then, and also, at that point, I moved to a different neighborhood where I found kids my own age that were playing music, and there was a band. They had a band, and they needed a bass player, so I actually found a place where I'd fit in, and that's how I actually started to learn, by getting in with a group and just learning the tunes that they were doing. Now, was, was that the band Dust? Oh, no. This is before Dust. Okay, so so you're playing, you're learning your craft, you're in with kids your own age, which makes it a lot easier. When do you sit there and start focusing, saying, this is what I really want to do, and what's your, what path did you take? Well, you know, it wasn't really a decision. I just sort of knew I wanted to do it. Somehow I just knew that I wanted to do it. And um, it was also, you know, it was a weird time, you know, Vietnam, Vietnam, uh, the Vietnam War was going on and 
school was weird because, you know, you were getting called a hippie all the time by, like, you know, your gym teachers or, you know, it was a very polarized sort of time. You know, it was America, love it or leave it, and it was a very weird thing with the war, and I knew I knew older people that were going to Canada and, you know, leaving the country, and people were trying to get out of, you know, being drafted, and uh, I wasn't doing too well in school, and, you know, I was cutting a lot of classes, and all I wanted to do was play music, and... You know, I I found Dust. This is, you know, some years before we actually made those records. And I used to go to school with Mark, you know, the, the drummer and with Richie. We went to the same high school, you know, and um, we were all cutting classes. And, you know, I, I, I we would just cut classes and go hang out at someone's house and listen to music and you know, dream and fantasize about playing professionally. You know, it was just something that I wanted to do. You know, I didn't like school. I didn't like what was going on. I just wanted to play music. I just wanted to be in a band. We were all like that. We were all thinking the same way. And, you know, we, I was hanging around. I was hanging around this neighborhood. It was really a street corner basically, near a really big park in Brooklyn, Prospect Park. And there was this big group of kids that, that we all hung out on this corner, and everybody was into music. And there were all these different groups of people that were playing together, and there was early form, you know, there was the early versions of Dust, even before I got into the band, Dust existed with different combinations of people. And then there was this uh, really talented young blues guitar player named Robert Schwartz, who died at a very early age because he got into an accident and he got a blood clot. But this kid was really, really talented as a, as a blues player. And I played with him for a while before, even, before I played with Dust. There were some really talented kids around in this, group of people that were, you know, a group of teenagers that were hanging around in this neighborhood corner, you know, and uh, dust came out of that little scene, and, um, you know, uh, but there were a lot of talent, talented kids, and we were the ones that sort of came out of it that actually ended up doing something, you know, uh, it's just... I don't know. It's one of those things that just sort of happened very organically. You know, there was no, it was just, we were all dreaming the same dream. We wanted to play music. We all wanted to be in a band. We all wanted, you know, we were loving the music at the time. Beatles, Stones, The Who, The Whole English Invasion. I was a Yardbirds fanatic. I mean, you know, uh, what everything that was going on, Jimmy, you know, Cream, you know, that we were all, you know, and then, you know, a little later on, the band. I mean, it was just, you know, or, or, and and uh, uh, um, you know, I had friends that were like Mike Bloomfield's fanatics, the ones that were like the blues guys, you know, that were really discovering blues. I mean, it was just this whole thing going on. 
It was incredible. And uh, I just was around it with like-minded kids. You know, we all wanted kind of to do that. So and I, I was lucky, one of the lucky ones. So you got, you know, you, Dust ended up recording albums, and then you recorded an album with uh, the, store, uh, the Stories. Uh, what was it like for you recording an album when, you know, you guys all had this like mind. It seemed you were all in a really good mental place in the fact that you love music. What was it actually like when you went in to record your first albums? Was there a nervousness or what went through your mind? Because I'm yeah, sure it's different than jamming. I mean, I mean, first of all, Dust, it, it took Dust a while to get a, to get a deal. Uh, and, you know, we had various aborted attempts to, at recording before we got a chance that actually worked out. You know, different people would take us into studios and give us a shot at recording something, and for one reason or another, it didn't work, you know. Uh, but then, you know, we, we, we got lucky, and uh, uh, Neil Bogart took a shot, you know, who had the, um, Buddha Kamasutra Records, which was the major bubblegum record at the time, he, the president, Neil Bogart, he was looking to try to do something different, and uh, we sort of got brought to him through different people that knew him, and and he gave us a shot, and he signed us. He was looking to do something different than what they've been doing, and he gave us a shot to record. But I mean, yeah, so what you're asking is, we went into the studio, we were basically inexperienced, uh, we, we wanted to play loud, because we felt like, well, everybody else was playing loud. I mean, Jimi Hendrix is loud. Cream is loud. <laughs> you know, and then we go in, and the engineers, we, this, the original engineer that we were working with was this old geezer, and he was freaking out, saying we were too loud. <laughs> you can't do it this way. And, you know, but he made records. You know, I'm sure this guy made great records, but, you know, he made records that were from an earlier time period than what we wanted to do. And eventually we, we got hooked up with another engineer who sort of understood what we were trying to do, and we recorded, you know. Uh, it was learning. It was a learning experience. You know, I, we didn't really know. You know, you, you kind of go in thinking probably some sort of fantasy that you imagine, and then when you go in, you, you know, there's probably a point where we all we're probably a little uncomfortable, maybe, until you get used to it. You know, it's, it's funny. See, Dust was the kind of band, we never really played live very much. We were a band that always did a lot of rehearsing, though. And we would rehearse in basements, and we'd have, you know, this big set of drums, and we'd be using all these amplifiers, we'd be playing loud as crap. And, and we just figured out, you know, you just go in and you do your thing, which really you kind of should be. But, you know, when you go into a studio, you know, there's a, it's a different environment that you're used to, especially when you're new to it. And, uh, you know, you, you kind of got to hopefully figure it out and be able to uh, find your way through it, to, to you know, find your comfort zone. You know, it's like the same thing, I guess, with... I mean, you know, it was new, new to us, man. We, we had no experience, but we, we did it, you know. And, uh, you know, when I listen to those records now, they're okay. 
I mean, I, I appreciate that people think they're incredible and were, were important in the history of early pre-metal sort of or whatever people think of them, but, you know, I listen to them, I just go, okay, I mean, I remember, you know, I, I, I wish we could have done this and I wish we knew about this and we could have been able to tell the engineer more of how we wanted to do things, but, you know, it takes you a while to understand how to express yourself in a term, you know, in a way to talk to these people. You know, you have to kind of learn. But, you know, it is what it is. And, and you know, I'm proud of them. And, uh, you know, people always bring them for me to sign to this day. You know, you know, fans still bring those, those dust records out. You know, the people that know them love them. And, and that, you know, it's great. Now, now, when you were playing with them and, and you're, you're growing in your career, when did you really start to feel you were really getting the handle on playing the bass? Because I'm sure when you were younger, you're still learning. You know, when did you start feeling that you were really getting to be one with your instrument? Well, it's funny. I felt probably one with my instrument for a long time, but the turning point was actually getting out of your comfort zone, which were, say the kids that you grew up with playing and then having to play with people that were really professional that didn't know who the hell you were, but they're going to about their, but they're thinking of hiring you for their bass player. And all of a sudden you come in doing what you used to do that everybody thought, Oh, this is great. Kenny. And then you got somebody going, Oh no, 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 no. You're playing way too many notes, pal. That ain't going to work. No. And I'll give you the perfect example, because after Dust and Stories, the first band that I played that was sort of out of my comfort zone of people that I was sort of, you know, had grown up with kind of, was Hall and & Oates. And, you know, I came into Hall and & Oates a really young guy that kind of was, grew up in a very sort of loose kind of way, you know, cream, busy playing, a lot of notes, not, 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 not used to more of a disciplined, soul-oriented kind of music that maybe Hall and Oates were doing more at that time. So, so it was, and then after Hall and Oates, after Hall and Oates, I played with Leslie West, and I'll never forget the day when we were playing a Cream tune, and of course, I had to do it like Jack Bruce. And Leslie turned to me one day when we were doing the tune and said, "Hey, Kenny, we don't need a." another effing Jack Bruce in the band. <laughs> and that's, that's like one of those light bulb moments when you realize, you know, that's when you realize, okay, you know, and you hope it sinks in and you understand the message. Play the song, but we don't need all the notes. Play it, you know, Play, play, just be a, be, be a solid bass player. Just play for the song. 
not about you. It's about the song and me as the artist. So, you know, it's one of those moments. Of, so those are the moments that, you know, along your journey, you know, that you uh, realize things about your playing or, you know, your thinking, your philosophy about what you're doing, about your function, your, your role as a bass player or whatever it is, you know, that you're doing. You know, obviously, it's bass player, part of the rhythm section, support, foundation, working for the song, working for the artist. not about you, not about how many notes. Play the right note at the right time. Play for the song. So, you know, respect the artist, respect the song. No, no. So, you know, some, some people get it faster than others. You know, the way that I grew up, I had a lot of freedom, nobody telling me what to do. Took me a little longer to get it, you know. And uh, But, you know, over the years, you, you learn and you refine it, and you figure out where you can do what you, you know, you figure out where you can be you and where you got to, you know, got to just, you know, you got you to gotta support the song. You know, that's what I always tell young people if they ask me for advice about stuff. At the end of the day, yeah, we you know when you're young, you're, you're full of piss and vinegar. You want to show people how fast you can play, or whatever it is, you know. But you know, I always, I always tell people that's all fine. You know, you should be able to, you should be able to play your ass off when called for. <laughs> but you know, if you're in the rhythm section, you got to support the song. You're, you're the foundation that everything is is built on, and you need to respect that and and play that and if you're not happy doing that then you should be doing something else or you know maybe that's not what you want to be playing you know if you want you know what i mean if, I, I i don't care about being a soloist or being the guy up front i love playing bass i love being back there and seeing everything going on around me and being part of it that holds it all together that keeps it keeps it going you know because that, that, that could be as hard to do as anything if not harder at times so, you know, I have a lot of respect for that. And I just always just gravitated towards that, you know. Like I said, I, it's just the way I gravitated just as, as someone that just loved bass and drums, you know. No. It's just the way I felt things, the way I heard things. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it was either drums or bass, but somehow that's that's where I wanted to be. Now, how were you starting to get these gigs, like with Hall & Oates and Leslie West? How did you start getting gigs? Because you've played with so many people. What What is the road for a bassist back then to I, get I, a gig? I was very lucky. I just, I would get a gig and somehow somebody would recommend me to another gig and I would get that gig. If I had an audition, I always was the guy that got the audition. I don't know. I didn't do anything. I really was very lucky, very blessed. You know, if it was an audition, like I said, I made the audition. I didn't look for the gig. I didn't make the phone. I didn't make a phone call. Someone would recommend me, and I would go to wherever I had to go to do, you know, to do it with whoever was, you know, auditioning, and I got the gig. I mean, I I got recommended to play with Leslie West. I only remember now how I got the recommendation, but. I went up to a studio, and I was the last person online. There, there was a whole bunch of people going in to audition for Leslie West. 
and I think everybody got three songs to play, and then it was next, and then next, and next, and I was the last person in, and after, like, the second song, Leslie stopped everybody and said, you got the gig. Wow. I mean, and then, while I was playing with Leslie, I was, I was living in Brooklyn, and I was sleeping one morning, you know, it was like maybe a Saturday morning, and I was home, in bed and phone rings and it's Rick Derringer. I never met Rick before. I don't know where he got my number. And he goes, is this Kenny? And I went, yeah. He goes, hey, Kenny, this is Rick Derringer. Hey, I'm putting this band together and I'd like you to be in it. I mean, that's literally what it was. (laughs) I don't, like I said, I didn't meet him before and I don't recall how he got my phone number, but you know, somehow I guess he got, wind of me on some level and figured he'd take a shot, you know. And then he told me, he goes, well, I have to go down to Louisiana to check out Vinnie Apice and his other, and his buddy who plays guitar down there, which was this Danny Johnson. And he goes, when I come back, I'll give you a ring. So what happened was he went down there. He liked those two guys, got them to be in the band and came back and said, all right, we're going to start rehearsing, and you're the bass player. Let's just do this thing. And then all of a sudden, we were, there I am in a band, you know, in, the, you know, in Derringer. Now, <laughs> when you fall into that band, then you start touring, what was it like touring then? What kind of venues were you playing? Well, uh, well, first of all, starting back with Dust, we never really toured. We only played the isolated show here and there. We didn't really do much live work at all. Stories toured. Uh, we did um, clubs, some theaters, occasional medium-sized outdoor kind of place maybe. This is all, you know, back early 70s. Um, you know, we did okay because once we had Brother Louie and that was number one, you know, we sort of, we were elevated a little bit, a little bit in terms of, you know, what we were doing. Um, uh, and then like with Leslie West, I believe we were doing sort of, you know, some Coliseum work. We were doing all the clubs at the time. You know all the all the the famous rock clubs that existed in the seventies. We we would do those, and then we would also do some you know sort of like a arena shows. You know Leslie was Leslie was pretty big, you know from Mountain and everything. So Leslie was doing pretty good at the time. And with Derringer, wow, with Derringer, you know Derringer was a band that. We made six records, basically. We never got hardly any radio play. We never had any kind of hit. We were really a high-energy live band that played their asses off because we had a great, great guitar player. And, well, it was, it was Rick, and we had Danny Johnson, who was a great guitar player. We had Vinnie Apice, who was a tremendous drummer, and me. And then even when the personnel changed, over the course of that band's life of about three and a half years, the other players were great too. And, 
But what we were, we were like the uh, most popular act to have as an opener for a lot of bands that were headlining at the time. So, you know, we, we were on the Aerosmith Rocks tour. We, we were second on the bill to Led Zeppelin at Bill Graham's Day on the Green. We, we were the support band during uh, a good part of the Frampton Comes Alive tour where he recorded that live record. We were a support band for Foreigner, for Pat Benatar. For, no, no, I don't know about Pat, but for, Foreigner. And a lot, what, whoever was, um, whoever was the, the, you know, between 1976 and 1979, basically, whoever was the huge national touring acts at that time, at one Boston, at one time or another, we would have been, we would have done tours with those people okay. or part of a tour, you know, as a support act, either the opener, either the opener or second on the bill. So you're playing these huge venues, much must be great. So you're playing. Oh man, we played, we played every shithole club to every megadome that existed between '76 and '79. Whatever was there, we played it, and more than once. So you're, you're, you're playing all the time. Now, I know later in your career, like in 88, you're Rolling Stone, then you Bases of the Year. How did that come about? Um, you know what? I don't know. All I did was play a, a tour with Bob Dylan, and next thing I know, I was number one in the critics' poll. How, how, did, how did Dylan? Yeah. How did Dylan find you? Um. Uh, um. One day I was having dinner with my girlfriend at the time. After she was done working, we were at a restaurant downstairs in the building where her office was, and her assistant came running down, going. Somebody from Bob Dylan's office just called looking for Kenny. <laughs> and we're sitting there, and my girlfriend and I look at each other like, duh, you know. And she gave me the number, and it was like some lawyer or something. So I called him back the next day, and they said, Bob wants you to come down and, and audition. And that's what I did. And Five days later, basically, six days, whatever it was, it wasn't, it was maybe a week or it was, I don't even know if it was a week. I think mean, it was like six days later, I was on the road with them. I mean, it happened so fast that it was just one of those things, man, you know? Yeah. Um, I think what, what happened was he had been rehearsing with with the band that he was using and the bass player wasn't working out so someone suggested they call me and basically the the band had it all together they just needed to work me in so in five days i learned i don't know how many freaking tunes man but in five days i learned all the material and they said is this weekly salary work for you? And I was like, oh, yeah, that's good. <laughs> and I was on the road. 
Just like that. Now, you've played with so many different types of musicians. Like, you play with Billy Squire and Billy Idol. How would those gigs come about? And how do you sit there, you know, after playing with someone like Bob Dylan, after playing with someone like Leslie West, how do you sit there and get in the mind frame? I mean, I know you're a talented bassist, but it's a completely different sound. And how do you figure out all those damn songs? I mean, you must have so many songs you've played in your life. Yeah, I don't, you know, it's, uh, it's, you know, well, first of all, I'll tell you this, some things come easier than others. Um, some people's music comes easier than others. Some things you just, somehow you, you're, you find yourself uh, very attuned organically in some sort of natural kind of organic way. You don't even have to think about it. you like, you might hear the tune a couple of times and you just remember it. Other tunes might be, for some reason, a little bit more, not so much of that. You, you need to work on it more. You need to listen more at home and play along with it or write out some charts. And then by the time you get done writing out a chart, you listen to the song so many times, oh, now I remember it. I don't need the, the damn chart anymore. You know, it's all different. Um... It's it's all different, and uh, you know, it, uh, it, it's really just um, it, it, I, you just take it for what it is, you know. Um, I'll I'll tell you this much: some things took me longer, maybe to uh, kind of get into. Because maybe at that time, the music I had been playing for the years before wasn't what this now new thing was. So, you, you know, maybe you feel, oh, I hear it, but this is just not kind of what I'm, this is not what I've been doing for the last part of my career so much. So all of a sudden you find yourself kind of, um, having to sort of get used to some other sort of approach of songwriting or chord patterns or uh, just a, whatever kind of bass feel this person's songs need. But once you get through that, you just learned something new, and now you're ready for any, you know, you're ready for what is going to come in the future because now you're kind of like, wow. I can do this really well now, so I'm ready for anything like that. And then for like somebody like Billy Idol, I mean, whose music isn't hard musically, but what I had to do for Billy Idol, which then worked for me with Joan Jett, was not being a real pick player usually. I had to learn how to play that music with all downstrokes because Steve Stevens said to me, you got to play all these tunes with a pick, and you got to play them all downstrokes. No up and downstrokes. All downstrokes. Very punk. You know, very punk staccato, da 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 Very Ramones-like, you know. So it took me a little while to build up the hand strength to do that. But, man, once I did that, wow, I was like a monster doing that for a while. I mean, and then with Joan Jett. That was the same thing, so I was all ready for that. 
And and if the Ramones had called me at that time and needed me to play bass, I would have been able to do that without even like you know, <laughs> without a second thought because I was just you know with Billy man. Once I got that technique down and built up some strength, you know you couldn't stop me, man. I was like the eighth note king for a while. How did you? How did you? And, uh... and then and then I then I joke around saying that. <laughs> Doing that gig and becoming like the picking eighth note king killed my fingers because I stopped using my fingers for a while. So I sort of lost, I lost some finger technique. You know what I mean? You don't use it, you kind of lose it. So, you know, it's funny about, you know, gigs like that. How did you? I mean, uh, you know, the same thing like with playing funk. That requires you to say use your thumb to like do a lot of thumping and snapping with your you know to play funk music. I used to be able to do that back in the seventies, but I you know it's so random, so so rare I should say. It's so random I do that kind of stuff. You know, I that technique really died died on me. I don't I don't really do that anymore because I never really get to do it. So you know, it's kind of become like. The one technique that's really suffered, because I just I just don't play that kind of music very much. How did you end you up? Know, how did you end up with Joan yeah. Jett? Um, well, Tommy Price, her drummer, is a friend of mine from New York, and uh, I I I um, I got a call from a friend of mine who wanted to know if I was available to do uh, as a session player to do a project for a French pop singer that was coming to New York, and he wanted to use a New York City band. And they said, the only thing is, you need to find a drummer that you like to play with. And I was like, okay, uh, I could do that. And, and I called Tommy and I said, hey man, you, you want I got this gig, and if we get it, it's gonna pay us some really good money, and we'll be done in a week. And it's right here in the city. Do you want to do it? So he goes, yeah. And we went down and we auditioned and we got the gig. We did the album. And then after that, Tommy Price says, hey, listen, Joan's looking for a bass player. Are you interested? I said, hell yeah, I'll, I'll do that. And so he just, you know, Joan needed a bass player. The timing was right. I just did this thing with Tommy Price. And then he kind of returned the favor and hooked me up with the Joan gig. And that ran for, what, four years? I did it for like four years, yep. So you were a Blackheart? I was a Blackheart for four years, and I did, and I did one record with her, um, and, uh, and one, uh, I did a, there was a bunch of, well, there was, uh, there was one video, there was a couple of videos, I think, I can't remember now. But uh, yeah, I did one record with her in the studio, unfortunately, it, it's actually a really good record. It just didn't really do that very well. But uh, it's actually a really good-sounding record. Um, it's called Pure and Simple. And, um, yeah, so, you know, that, that was cool. I like working with Joan. That was a real rocking band for four years. Now, now, how did you uh, meet up with John Eddy? Because John, I remember John's uh, uh, from my from South Jersey, well, South Jersey area. Uh, Philly area and then Florida. How did you meet up with him? Um, John Eddie, you know what's funny? In 1995, 
I was playing with Graham Parker. And we were playing some club in Jersey, and John Eddy was the opening act. <laughs> I remember that's the first time I, I, I'd seen him. But um, no, you know what? John Eddy had players in his band that were friends of mine from, again, from New York City. And um, again, it was a situation where I guess he, you know, he had different people in and out of his band over a period of years. I guess he was like, oops, I need a bass player again. And I got recommended for it. And I just went down and uh, went down and played with him. You know, that's another thing. Like, as I was saying before, how some people's music may come to you really quick. You just feel like you're very in tune with it and others not so much. That was John Eddie's music was like that for me. I went down to audition for him, and, and we're just, you know, all right, we'll play this tune, okay. And I just found that every tune that we played, I just remembered it, like, after one time. And that, that doesn't always happen, you know. It's great when it does, but most of the time, it doesn't work that way for me. And yet, his music, I, I really liked his songwriting, and his songs just came really easy to me. I mean, I you know his melodies and his chord patterns and just it just the feels. It was very it just felt very natural to me his stuff. And uh, you know I've been playing with him for a long time, and I, I certainly you know I certainly I'm not afraid to saying that you know after playing with somebody twenty years you know course you can have periods of being bored with it but <clears throat> all the music that I've done with them from all the periods even be you know, like there's a lot of music I play with them that came before I was ever involved with them and then there's the stuff that he did you know while I was with him or stuff that I recorded with him or you know and all, but all his music pretty much has always come very easy to me and I've always actually enjoyed playing with him because I mean I wish he I wish he worked more now. He doesn't work as much as we as he used to. And and I wish he had more success than he did because he's a really good songwriter. But um I, I, I like his music, you know, and, and it uh it's one of those things that always felt very uh comfortable. Like like an old shoe, you know, like your favorite old shoes or your sneakers or something. Just just like a, a really good fit, you know? Right. Now nice. Now you also you play with the New York Dolls. Yeah. <laughs> now were, were you a fan of the Dolls when you were younger, or did you listen to their music? How did that all come about? And then I guess you toured overseas, and then you toured with uh, Poison well, and Motley Crue. Okay. Let me tell you. Let me tell you about the Dolls. What was great about the Dolls back in the well, first of all, I <laughs> I remember the first time I sort of encountered those guys. Now, I was living in Brooklyn, and this friend of mine said to me, he goes, Kenny, I found this bar in the village that's crawling with women. we got to go there. There's this whole scene going on there. And so we go to this bar, and it was called Nobody's. And it was on Bleecker Street, you know, in the, in the West Village. And the dolls were hanging out there. 
And this place was crawling with, with women and guys that were dressed up with all the English clothing from that period, you know, crushed velvet pants and satin, and they all had these great hairdos, and everybody was trying to look like, you know, the faces or Zeppelin and, you know, rooster haircuts and, you know, the whole kind of glam thing was going on. And we, we found this place and we found where all this was going on and the dolls were basically were holding court in there. But, you know, the dolls used to do these shows at this place called the Mercer Art Center. Also, like, right on the border of the East and West Village. And the place is no longer around. The building collapsed <laughs> years ago. But they used to play these shows, man. And you'd go up there, and musically, because I was into people that could play, I was kind of a snob, you know, into Cream, and, you know, I loved Jack Bruce, and... Bases that bass players I can play and guitar players I can play. The dolls were really compared to that. They were fucking awful. Excuse my language, but they were they were awful. They were awful. I didn't really get it. But man, were they 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 had this scene going with girls. I mean, hot chicks like you wouldn't believe, just crawling with hot chicks, you know. And you know, and there's like a very kind of. Uh, you know, it was that whole glam thing. So it was, you know, everybody's like trying to be all glam and guys are wearing chicks clothing and the girls are all look like hot, slutty girls, you know, makes you think of like, you know, rebel, rebel, you know, very much like kind of that whole period, man, of Bowie and, and glam and all that stuff was going on, you know, and it was like a whole scene. And then it all kind of gravitated to Max's Kansas City, you know, and and it was uh, and and it was amazing, you know. Uh, musically, someone like me at the time, really, I'd be the first one to admit I didn't really get it. It sounded very abrasive to me, you know. Although I certainly appreciated, you know, you know, I I, I figured it out and, and learned to appreciate it for what it really is, and you know, it was basically you know forerunner of punk. And, uh, you know, it was uh, definitely a lot of uh, influence came from them. I, you know, for, for whatever, you know, whether you think they can play or not, you can't deny that they had a major influence on, on certain aspects of music, you know. Um, so, but, and then, you know, you, you kind of got to go, well, that's what rock and roll is about, isn't it? Because... It's sort of like break rules. I mean, rock and roll is about breaking rules. So if, if you stop breaking rules, it's going to get real boring real fast. So every so often, somebody's got to shake it up somehow. Now, you know, you may not like it, but like I said, eventually I can't. You know, same thing with the Ramones. Like, I love the Ramones, but the first time I heard them, I was in a progressive rock band. Right. Trying to be like, yes. So to me, the Ramones were like, oh, what is this? But, but, you, but I love the Ramones, and I don't listen to progressive rock anymore. I'd rather listen to the Ramones. Right. So, you know, 
that's the point. Whatever that point is, that's what I'm saying. Well, okay, we, yeah. we're running out of time. I got to ask you, now you're, on, you're starting a tour with the Yardbirds. Now, you had mentioned them earlier that you love them. How did that come about, and, and what's it like touring nowadays? Well, so back in the day, the Yardbirds were probably my favorite band on the planet. And I listened to their records constantly, the original mono versions. Um, and, you know, I, I remember I remember loving the sound of Jeff Beck playing through a fuzz tone so much that I almost quit playing bass, thinking I, I want to play guitar because I want to sound like Jeff Beck. Good thing I didn't, good thing I did not do that. But um, to make a long story short, I always loved the Yardbirds, and uh, cut to a few years ago, I have a guitar player friend in New York City who I email with back and forth about different things, about, you know, musical stuff, and one day he sends me an email about something, and he goes, by the way, I think the Yardbirds are looking for a bass player, why don't you contact Jim McCarty, he's on Facebook. So I was feeling, I was having one of those good days, feeling good and competent about myself, and said, sure, I should do that. What the heck? So I found him on Facebook, and I sent him a short personal message saying who I was, and if you want more information, just Google my name. You'll find everything that you possibly want. Here's my website. And I said, I've been a fan since I was 13 years old. I know everything pretty much you've ever did. Your original bass player was a huge early influence on me. And if you need a bass player, I would love to do this. And I can tell you I'm the guy for this gig. And, and three days later, he got back to me and just said, and this is on Facebook. Three days later, he got back to me and said, you've got the job. Really? So, I mean, I, I dreamed about being in the Yardbirds when I was 13, 14, whatever it was. So basically, 50 years later, the dream came true. And you knew all the tunes already, which must have been great for you. You didn't have to go out and learn anything. Oh, yeah. It was, it was amazing. You know, it was like, I can't... And, then, and now, when I go out with them, I just, you know, I play these tunes and I just smile at myself sometimes and just go, I can't believe I'm playing this stuff. This is like, you know, I get to play all these great tunes that I just, you know, loved as a kid, you know. It's really great stuff, you know. I, I love the Yardbirds. Now, and you're playing with them in Florida, I think? Yeah, well, at the end of this month, we're, we're doing the uh, Flower Power Well, we're doing part of the Flower Power Cruise. We're doing three days of it. And... There's a whole bunch of great people on it. Vanilla Fudge are going to be doing it, and uh, and then and then we're doing some dates with the Fudge uh, after the cruise down in Florida. So do you still get and that? Then, and then uh, there's there's more stuff coming uh, over the over the, the this year. You know, there's some more stuff in spring, some stuff in summer, some stuff in the fall. We're going to Brazil to do a bunch of blues festivals down uh, down there. Uh, going back out to California for some things. I think there's a, might be something in New Orleans. Uh, it's really 
really good, man. The band's great. Band kicks butt. Now, now, is the road has the road changed for you now since you know years later? Do you do you try to eat healthier? I mean, well, how's the road different than it was when you were younger? Well, I can't party like an animal like I used to. <laughs> <laughs> we just can't do that anymore. You know, I'm 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 getting old. No, you know, um, I still like to travel, but I can't do it unless it's on a level that's at least comfortable for me at this point. Uh, whereas, you know, when you were younger, you could put up with a lot more stuff that, you know, right, you know, someone my age wouldn't, wouldn't be able to do it. I mean, the Yardbirds treat us, you know, the Yardbird gigs, everybody gets treated really well. Uh, you know, everything is done properly. You know, money's good. You get treated right. Your accommodations are good. The shows, every, everything is done in a way that, uh, uh, older folks like myself, we can all put up with it. I mean, you know, I, I listen, I, I was, I'm a touring animal. I mean, that's what I did. I mean, I've done my share of recording, but I was always a touring guy. And I've toured my whole career. And, uh, you know, depending on who you were with, sometimes it was upscale and luxurious. And sometimes it could be down and dirty, you know. And, you know, when you're younger, you can deal with the down and dirty. And you're having fun and, you know, you're drinking and yeah, 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 whatever you're doing. But, but you know, these days, it's different. You know, you got to take care of yourself. You can't carry on like a jerk. you got a job to do. You don't want to, like, you know, kill yourself. And you got to be smart. And, uh, you know, you want to at least be treated in a way that you're, you can deal with the road in a comfortable way and, and deal with it, you know. So, uh, you know, I still like going out of the road. I just can't do it for as long a period as maybe as I used to. Right. I mean, I used to go out for long periods of time. And, and actually, I didn't go out as long as other people I know. But now, you know, like I could do a month. At, I could probably still do a month if I'm, if I'm doing it in a comfortable way. But any more than that, uh, you know, I need a little bit of break in between. Cool, man. You know, it, you know, but I I like to go out there, man. I love playing live. I love an audience. I love playing live. I love being on a stage. I love hearing the volume coming out of an amplifier. I want to hear my bass pumping. I love playing with the drummer. I, you know, I, I love playing live music, man. There's nothing like it. Cool. Well, you that, know, that's what I do. You know, that's what I do. Cool. You know, I, I, I want to thank you for coming on, man. This was great. You're like, you're like a rock and roll history book. It's, uh, oh, thanks. It's, I appreciate it. And uh, people, go to his website. It's KennyAronson.com. That's A-A-R-O-N-S-O-N.com. It has all his info you need. It's got who he's touring with, his show's coming up. So please go check him out. Go to my website, CooperTalk.net. There's over 590 episodes up there. You can email me, Cooper, at CooperTalk.net. And if you want any uh, interview techniques or booking good guests or getting your show started, Interview me. I'll give you private lessons through Skype or the phone. So that's Cooper at coopertalk.net. Don't forget Twitter. It's at coopertalk. And remember my cookbook, Stop the Salt. Go to stopthesalt.com. 120 low-sodium recipes. It'll get you healthy. No pictures to intimidate you. No long list of ingredients because we always get crazy with the ingredients. You can get it at barnesandnoble.com or amazon.com. If you get it at stopthesalt.com, I'll sign it and I make more money. So please, people, go check out kennyaronson.com. Go to coopertalk.net. Email me, cooper at coopertalk.net. 
Follow me on Twitter, at CooperTalk. And that's about it. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I will talk to you guys next week.